Several people have asked me about the television on the front wall of the balcony, what the purpose of that television is. So this will be your opportunity for everybody to look over your shoulder and see it there. Discover it now instead of in the middle of the sermon. And the reason it's there is because the Red Sox made some really key acquisitions in the offseason this year, and we expect them to go to the World Series. Sorry, you Angel fans. You know, it's just the way it is. Go Red Sox. I mean, um, no, it's there. It's there so that the people in the front can be aware of what's going on once the video screens are up and operational, which we expect to happen within the next two weeks. And so it'll be for the person at the pulpit, the people on the platform, to be able to see what's going on without having to turn around and look over their shoulder. So that's its purpose. Of course, we might watch the Red Sox, though. You never know. You never know. Open your Bibles up, if you would, to James chapter 4, please. James chapter 4, page 1210, if you're using a hymn Bible. If you're using a hymn Bible, you've got an interesting Bible. It's a pew Bible. A hymn Bible, as opposed to a her Bible, I suppose. I would imagine, right? (laughs) Yes, indeed. You know, when my children were young, they loved it when Dad would read to them. We tried to make that a pretty regular practice in our home for Dad to read to the kids, and they liked it best when I would read in what they call voices. So I would adopt different characterizations with my voice, and uh, some of them were quite interesting, but the children enjoyed it anyway. But in reading to my kids, one of the books that stands out, I think for them and certainly for me, is a fun little story called The Braggy King of Babylon. The Braggy King of Babylon. It's a children's story, and it focuses really on Daniel chapter 4, and how in Daniel 4, we're told about Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the known world at that time, and how God humbled him to the place where he actually ate grass like a beast. And then when his heart was sufficiently humbled, God elevated him again to the throne of the kingdom of Babylon. And one might ask himself the question, and that is, why did God humble that king in such a dramatic fashion? Why did he do that? And I think the answer within the context of Daniel, certainly, is that so God might teach this king, that as it says in Daniel 4.25, that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. But the, le- but the lesson was really for more than just Nebuchadnezzar himself. It wasn't that that pagan king didn't need to learn that lesson. He certainly did. But there have been plenty of pagan kings before and after that need to learn that lesson. And God has not done that to them. So there's a, there's a deeper purpose behind God's humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. That purpose lies in God's 
revealing himself through that amazing event to his captive people, Israel. As God humbled Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful king of the world, who had taken Israel captive, God was giving them an enacted parable that says that all future kings are subject to his power and will, just like Nebuchadnezzar. And that would be exceedingly important for the people of Israel over the next 600 years to know as they suffered under the rule of one pagan empire after another. Now, you and I do not even have a fraction of the power of Nebuchadnezzar. We have not the smallest fraction of his authority or his glory. And yet, how often we act like we are independent of God. We are, my friends, an arrogant people. We are an arrogant people. And James has something to say to us this morning in our arrogance. In fact, in James chapter 4 and beginning in verse 11, he reveals to us two common marks of arrogance. Two very common marks of arrogance that are frequently overlooked among the people of God so that we might put off this wicked sin. May God give us grace this morning to hear and do His Word. Two marks of arrogance. The first is judgmentalism. Judgmentalism. Take a look at the text, beginning in verse 11. James says, do not speak against one another, brethren. Stop right there. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He is back again to the topic of the tongue. He introduced it back in chapter 1 and in verse 26 where he says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. He gives it a very extended treatment in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 and running all the way through verse 12, where he says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, 3.1, knowing that as such we shall incur, incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle his whole body as well. And he goes on to talk about the power of the tongue for evil. Well, he's back to it again. Chapter 4 and verse 11. He's back to the sins of the tongue. And by speaking to the sins of the tongue, he is speaking to the community of believers about destructive habits within the congregation. Destructive speech habits, and destructive thought patterns. He's right back around to that same old problem. Do not speak against one another, brethren. 
The verb that he uses here, translated in the New American Standard as speak against, could have other translations for us. And in fact, I'm sure if if you're using different Bible versions, you have some different translations out there. It can very legitimately be translated as to speak evil of. To speak evil of. Do not speak evil of one another would be a very legitimate way to translate it. Or, do not say bad things about one another. Or, do not slander one another, brethren. It all gets at the meaning of this particular verb. James is condemning wicked speech. He is condemning those words that fall all too readily from my mouth and from yours with regard to one another in the body. Willful false accusations fall into this category of evil speech or slander. Willfully and falsely accusing people of things that you know they did not do. Exaggerating people's faults that are real. How often in pastoral counseling we find this to be the problem. A husband and a wife will come in and and they're having marital difficulties. And they will begin to express those difficulties about each other in terms of the use of the word always and never. You always do this and this and that. Or you never do this or that. My friends, that is an exaggeration. An exaggeration. Nobody always does anything and nobody never does anything. And so in the counseling chair, we prohibit the use of always and never in expressing our feelings towards one another. But this exaggeration of a person's faults, James says, is to speak against them. It's to slander them. It can be the needless repetition of a person's faults. Instead of letting them go, it's to continually remind them and bring them up to them over and over again to speak to them and to speak to others about them. The very fact of slander itself. You know, a good working definition of slander is to say behind somebody's back what you would never say to their face, right? To slander them. All of these forms of evil speaking damage the reputation and the character of people. It tears them down. It it destroys them. It assassinates them. And some of us are honestly pretty good at it. The blade is sharp. It goes in and does its deadly work and comes back out again. The seriousness of this, by the way, is, is heightened according to James, by the victim of the sharpened tongue. Look again, verse 11. Do not slander, do not speak evil of, do not speak against one another, brethren, for he who speaks against a brother. Do you see it? Speaks against a brother. It's bad enough to speak in this fashion about somebody outside of the community of faith. It's doubly devious And devilish to speak this way about those who are brothers and sisters 
because of the common union of the indwelling Spirit of God. That which is to be the distinguishing mark of the fellowship, of the brotherhood, is to be love. Jesus said in John chapter 13 and verse 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It is love that is to distinguish us. And so when we use our tongues in this way, it's a grievous sin. It's a grievous sin. What causes it? What causes a Christian to speak evil of a brother or a sister? What is it? What's going on inside my heart and my mind that would, would lead me to speak in this way about someone else? Made in the image of God, redeemed by Christ, indwelled by His Spirit, and made my brother or sister in Christ. What would possess me to do it? James diagnoses this for us in verses 11 and 12. I've broken it down for you in the handout into what I'm calling man's presumption and James' prescription. There is a presumptuousness that stands behind this kind of vile behavior. Certain presumption that I make, that you make, when we engage this way. There's really a twofold presumption that stands behind the wicked use of the tongue. James spells it out for us in verse 11. The first is, the idea that the law is wrong. I presume that the law is wrong, and thus I speak and act the way James characterizes here. Verse 11, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. Now, the word that James uses, translated here, judge or judging, carries with it more than simply expressing one's opinion. It speaks also in its semantic range of meaning to condemn. So it is to, it is to evaluate, it is to, it is to measure, and then it is to condemn. That is the idea that it, that it falls short when we judge. We judge it to fall short. We judge it to not measure up. We judge it to be of not sufficient value. James says, He who condemns his brother condemns the law. Verse 11. He weighs the law and finds it wanting. Now, the irony of this is amazing. Think with me about this. The person who slanders his brother and condemns his brother is actually slandering and condemning the law of God. And what makes this absolutely ironic is that it is the law of God that weighs us and finds us wanting. It condemns us. And yet we would sit 
in our presumptuous attitude, our arrogance, as if we sit above it and it must measure up to us. It is a biting irony. Now, what law is it that they're sitting in judgment over? What law are they weighing and finding to be wanting? What law is it that they are condemning? Well, contextually, I think it has to be the law of love. The law of love. Look back to chapter 2, verse 8, where you see it expressed there. James says, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, and then he spells it out for us, by the way, citing Leviticus 19 and verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law, I believe, that James is referring to here in chapter 4 and in verse 11. It is the law, it is the requirement of God that we love our neighbor as ourselves. I'm persuaded of this for a number of reasons, not the least of which is, notice at the end of verse 12 where he says, Who are you to judge your what? Your neighbor. Your neighbor. So I think this is very much in James's thinking as he is speaking to them here. And what he is basically accusing them of is to sit in condemnation upon the law's requirement to love one another and to say that we don't have to do that. That law is not binding on us. It's not weighty enough. It doesn't come to a high enough level to bind our conscience and our actions. It's optional. That's exactly what we do when we slander brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. That's exactly what we do when we criticize our fellow Christians, when we condemn our fellow Christians rather than loving them. It's as if that we are communicating that the law of God that requires us to love them is not good. That it's not necessary. It should be repealed. It's a bad law. And thus we condemn it. We judge it. Or it's optional. Might be true for you. Not true for me. Not binding on me. This would be like a police officer who steals. One who is sworn to behold law and justice who resorts to stealing while wearing his badge. It's a non sequitur. It it doesn't make sense. And yet that's indeed what James says we do when we engage in this behavior. That's why this is not a small matter, a small sin. This is exactly why James mentions it over and over and over again. It's destructive. It's arrogant. It's wicked. And God hates it. God hates it. There's a second part of the presumption. The first being that the law is wrong. Secondly, in verse 12, the second part of that presumption is that I am like God qualified to judge. That also is what is going on in our thinking when we engage in this kind of wicked behavior. 
We're saying that the law is wrong. The law that requires me to love you is a wrong law. It's a law that doesn't bind me. And we're also saying, by the way, I am like God himself and I can judge you. I am like God. Verse 12. James says, there is only one lawgiver and judge. The one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? When we set ourselves up above the law and make it optional in terms of its call upon us for obedience, we set ourselves in the position of God. We have taken to ourselves the role of God himself. We are usurping the authority of God. James is very, very emphatic here. The beginning of verse 12. Look again at it. There is only one lawgiver and judge. There are not two. In fact, we can say that one of the very first things we need to learn about Christian theology is there is only one God and you are not him. And yet how often we get that mixed up. How often we seek to take his throne, to unseat him, to take away his priorities, his prerogatives, his role. Why is James so emphatic that there is only one? He goes on to say, one who is able to save and destroy. Do you see it? Verse 12. One who is able to save and destroy. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 12 and verse 5. I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, Fear him. There is a weightiness to this. There is only one who can save and one who can condemn. And that is God himself. This kind of language causes me to think back into the Old Testament. Back into the book of Job. Job 38 For the first 37 chapters or so of this book, Job has been protesting his innocence. And he has been seeking an audience with God Almighty that he might demonstrate his innocence. His helpful friends have been continually savaging him by their accusations, false that they are. And Job says, if I could only have an audience with God, and we could set the record straight. So in chapter 38 and beginning in verse 1, Job gets his audience. But it doesn't go exactly the way Job thought it might go. Be careful what you wish for. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you and you instruct me. Where were you 
when I laid the foundation of the earth. And on he goes, right? By the time Job is finished with his audience with God, chapter 40 and verse 3, then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. God's answer to Job is really quite amazing. If we were to boil it all down into the vernacular, it would be sit down and shut up. Sit down and shut up. You are in places you don't belong. Saying things that you have no knowledge of. How dare you seek to usurp the authority of your own creator? James 4. One commentator, by the way, remarking on this particular verse, James 4.12, said the following, and I quote, Do you have what it takes to judge humanity? Close quote. Do you? Do you have what it takes to judge humanity? James' words here, but who are you, end of verse 12. Take my mind as well into Romans chapter 14, where Paul is dealing there with conflict in the church. People in the church that are, that are judging one another over their use of Christian freedom. Remember, Paul says, Romans 14, verses 3 and 4, the following. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. It's the same basic idea. It's so easy for me to slip into the role of God and begin to judge people. To pretend that I can peer into someone's heart. To actually know what's going on inside them. Why they do what they do. What their motives are. And I can't. And neither can you. It is off limits to us. God alone sees the heart. Man looks on the outside. God looks on to the heart. God looks onto the heart. But boy, is there a temptation. Temptation to critically evaluate and judge one another in the body. To make outrageous statements of judgment. I don't know how such and such a person could really be a Christian and do these things that they do. Are you judge over them? Has God given you the ability to see into their heart and to evaluate all things? Put your hand over your mouth. 
But it's not just the big things. In fact, it's the little things where we practice our judging. Driving down the street. That is an ugly car, I'll say, before I catch myself. What gives me the right to say that? On what authority do I say that? That's an ugly outfit. Your clothes do not match. I do not like the way the place is decorated. I do not like the color of your house, the color of your hair, or your eyes, or the shoes you're wearing, or on and on it goes. Did God make you the fashion police? Where is your badge? Right? But boy, are we quick. We are so quick to voice our opinions about things, to weigh things, and to decide they don't come up to standard. They don't match up. They don't line up. And we condemn them. And we condemn each other. James says, my friends, these things should not be. They should not be. In fact, he gives us a prescription. A prescription to, to countermand man's presumption. His prescription here is his solution to the problem of critical and judgmental speech is, is really quite simple. Are you ready for it? Stop it. Stop it. It's as simple as that. Don't do it. Restrain yourself. Bite your tongue. Close your mouth. Replace ungodly speech, ungodly thoughts, critical attitudes with a Christian attitude of love. Be a doer of the law, end of verse 11. A doer of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the prescription to overcome a critical spirit and a judgmental mouth. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's enough there to convict us all, isn't there? But James is not going to turn us loose. And neither am I. We're going to finish out the chapter. We're going to arrive at another mark of arrogance. Another mark. This is the arrogance of self-confidence. The arrogance of self-confidence. By the way, we live in an age of self-confidence. By all objective standards, our school systems are an abysmal failure. And yet we are, you interview students, and according to the surveys, they are the most confident in their abilities. And yet they can't read and write. We live in a very arrogant age. We are a very confident people. We'll go around the world and tell everyone how it ought to be done. Because we've got it together, right? Even our missionaries suffer from arrogance. 
to go to a foreign land and begin to spill out the American way of doing things. As if we have a corner on biblical truth. After all, we've done such a good job with it, right? My friends, so self-confident we are. We'll take over our Bible translations. We'll take our Western music. We'll take our Western way of doing church. And we'll tell them, this is God's way of doing things. Really? Then what did the people of God do for the first 1,500 years before Western culture began to ascend. We must be very, very careful. The tie, what's the tie between judgmentalism and self-confidence? Textually, it's simple. The tie is human weakness. Human weakness. And it is human weakness that should cause us to restrain from both a judgmental attitude and speech and a self-confident assertion about life. But it's so easy to forget our place in the universe, isn't it? God of wonders, we just sang, right? You are holy. This is your universe. It displays your glory. Yet we walk around self-made men. Well, what's man's presumption here? It's again a twofold presumption. Verse 13, they were assuming their future plans. James 4.13, come now. You who say today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make prophet. James is speaking here, I'm convinced, to an imaginary group of merchants. He has selected them out, this imaginary group, in order to give a lesson that goes beyond those who merely engage in business to the congregation as a whole. And he begins with an interesting expression, verse 13. Come now, just a minute would be another way to translate it. Just a minute. You who say today, tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city, we'll spend a year there, we'll engage in business and we'll make a profit. Really? Really? Such self-confidence. These are the deliberate planners among us. These are the confident ones. You know, they got their whole life all worked out. They've decided where they'll go. They've decided when they'll arrive. They've decided how long they'll stay. And they're quite certain about the eventual result of their plans. We're going to make a profit. See it? We're going to make a profit. How confident. How self-assured. How arrogant. Now, he's not talking, as I said, just about business people. He's talking to every one of us who is susceptible to this sin. And that, by the way, I think means he's talking to all of us. 
Notice down to verse 16, by the way. That is, you boast in your arrogance. Do you see it? This whole boasting thing. I think James is talking to all of us again here this morning. Self-confidence. We all have it. So easy to slip into it. So easy. Oh, I I don't want to join the church because I'm only going to be here a year and then I'm leaving. People have told me that. Really? You know for sure you're leaving in a year. How confident you are. Or how about this? After I graduate, I'm going to get a job. I'm going to get married and I'm going to buy a house. Nice. Be confident, young one. (laughs) Be confident. I'm going to retire. And I'm going to travel. I'm going to see my grandkids and I'm going to enjoy life. How confident you are, old one. How confident you are of all that you're going to do. It affects pastors, by the way. I'm going to graduate from seminary and then then I'm going to pastor a church. Are you sure? Do you have a promise from God? I'm going to get this promotion at work. See, I'm going to get this promotion and I'm going to get a big raise. I'm going to get the promotion and the big raise. Then I'm going to be financially set. All my financial woes and worries will be gone. They'll be behind me. Kind of reminds me of the guy in Luke 12. This is what I'll do, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many good things laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat. Drink. Be merry. But God said to him, You fool. You fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God, the Savior said. Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 1. Do not boast about tomorrow. For you do not know what a day may bring forth. Oh, so confident we are, right? We presume our future. Beyond that, we presume our future longevity. That's the second part of man's presumption here. We presume our future plans and we presume our future longevity. Verse 14. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Now that kind of takes the air out of the tire, doesn't it? You vapor. No, wait, no, no, no. I'm a successful businessman. No, you're a vapor. You're a vapor. 
You're like the steam above a cup of coffee. You're like your breath on a cold morning. Here and gone. Just about that quick. We don't even know if we're going to live tomorrow. None of us know that. No one knows. That's why there's an urgency to the gospel, my friends. That's why Paul says, today is the day of salvation. When you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You have no promise of tomorrow. None. Here today, gone tomorrow. How many people in Japan woke up in the morning thinking they had lots of time to do lots of things? And in a very short period of time, their lives were snuffed out. For those who lived and now live with a loss, loved ones, family members, property, a way of life, gone. You saw the videos. It's incredible. This is no third world nation. This is Japan. This is the height of the industrial revolution. The inventors of all things technical. Whose buildings are designed to withstand powerful earthquakes. And yet it collapses. It's like steam over a cup of coffee. Here and gone. We do not know when accidental death will take us. Be it a heart attack as you sit in the pew. May it be a car accident on the way home. How many of you remember Al Yapel? Do you remember how he died? In a car accident after lunch on a Sunday. He pulled out of the parking lot of a restaurant. Was broadsided and killed. There's no promise. None. Illness can come upon us just like that. It has happened in my own family. More than 10 years ago, when my wife came down with rheumatoid arthritis, one month uh, she was a picture of health, not a problem. Within 30 days, she was bedridden. We had no idea what was overtaking us. We didn't know where the bottom was. The return of Christ. Hmm? Our blessed hope, right? The thing that we're supposed to be looking for. Yes. Yeah, but you know, he hasn't come in so long. The unbelievers say. By the way, I think that's close in this context. I'll just show you this over in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, where he says, You be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. For behold, the judge is standing where? In the foyer. 
He's in the foyer. He's right at the door. We have no certainty, none, as to the longevity of our lives. Again, as one writer said, since you cannot guarantee your existence for even one day, can you really declare what will happen in the future? Right? Oh, we live with the illusion of self-control. I've said it often at funeral services. You control neither the day of your birth nor the day of your death. So if you don't control the beginning and you don't control the end, how much control do you really think you have between those two events? And yet we live with such self-confidence. We put off the gospel. I'll come around to it at another time. Come back and tell me more someday. These things are mildly interesting to me. My friend, you may be dead before this day is out. Be reconciled to God. Just a vapor, he says. What's James' prescription to overcome this? Verse 15. Instead, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live. And also do this or that. Now, James is not giving a religious formula by which we baptize our independent plans, okay? I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. Oh, yeah, and if the Lord wills. No, no, no. Okay? It doesn't work that way. There's no magic in these words. He's after our heart's attitude. These words express a, a deep dependence upon the sovereignty of God. A full understanding of his providence in our lives. And an acceptance by faith of that reality. That's what he means. Can't just simply say, if the Lord wills, we think we're covered. We must consciously believe and live in light of that reality. Only if the Lord wills. Only if the Lord wills. But as it is, verse 16, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, maybe we will get hit by a plane. We can cut that out of the video, can we, John? You never know, my friends. We live in a flight path. Are you ready? You ready to go home? Therefore, James says, summing it up here, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, To him it is sin. This self-confidence is just, it's not a small matter. James is very clear. He calls it evil at the end of verse 16. Do you see it? He calls it evil. 
And then he goes on and he, and he says, to him who knows the right thing to do, and by the way, in context, the right thing to do is recognizing God's providence over our lives. And a, a refusal to do that, a failure to do that, is sin. It is the sin of omission. Sin of omission. Now, for balance. James is not condemning all planning. James is not condemning all strategic planning. The New Testament is loaded with illustrations of the people of God engaging in planning. Our Lord Himself was a very strategic planner. If you read the Gospels and think through what is being communicated to us, where he says we are to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus himself is the living example of that statement. He was a very strategic thinker for the purpose of the gospel. And so was the Apostle Paul. So he is not condemning planning. Planning is good and planning is proper, as long as it is done with a realization of the sovereignty of God. They say no plan survives first contact with the enemy, right? There needs to be a recognition that God gets a vote in everything we do. And he may greatly transform our plans. God is sovereign. We are weak. We are frail. We are ignorant. And we are entirely dependent upon him for the next breath that you will fill your lungs with. <laughs> this is just Cable Airport, right? Little planes that just come in and out. <laughs> Got it. F-15s flying yeah, air cover over us. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> Beautiful. Can you imagine, honestly, oh, this is all off the tape, right? Yeah. <laughs> honestly, can you imagine living like that? Seriously. Wow. We just take it for granted, you know. Fighter planes flying overhead. That's not normally a good sign. You know what I'm saying? We're so, man, we are blessed. We're so blessed. Nobody has to run and duck when you hear it. Where was I? Here we are. How do you take God into account with your planning? How do you do that? Let me just give you a couple of really quick ideas as we finish up. First is just to recognize His providence. as simple as that. Just recognize His providence. God may have other plans for you. So it's fine. Man plans his way. The Lord directs his path. Make your plans under the, with the understanding that God gets a vote. And so he may dramatically change your plans. I mean, we believe Romans 8.28 is true, don't we? God's working all things together for good. So the changing of your plans is part of his plan for good. So recognize his providence. Beyond that, I'll just say this, and that is recognize his will. 
Let me just keep it focused there. Recognize his providence, which is that you start in a certain direction and God may dramatically change the direction you go in. He has the right and he has the authority and he has the power to do it. But beyond that, we need to recognize as well. That is, we need to submit his plans to the word of God, to the scriptures, and make sure that our plans are in accordance with his revealed will. Get a concordance, do a search. This is the will of God. There are a number of places in the New Testament where it's made very, very clear to us what the will of God is. And he expects us to live in accordance with those. Our problem is we want to know all the secret things, which according to Deuteronomy 29, 29, belong to the Lord our God and are not ours. They used to say when I was a kid growing up, mind your own beeswax, right? Not yours to know. So submit your plans to the will of God. Make sure they do not violate his expressed will as revealed in the scriptures. Secondly, be ready for the providence of God to move you where he wants you to be. Maybe I can say it this way. Enjoy the ride. Enjoy the ride. Because I can tell you something. 20 years ago, there was absolutely no expectation that I would be standing here in this pulpit. When I found out that we were moving to Southern California, courtesy of Bank of America. One never knows what God has in store for his children. Judgmentalism and self-confidence. They just, we need to root them out. It's not going to be easy. We're not going to dig them out once and that's the end of it. It's going to be a continual fight. It's a fight of faith. We fall down. He picks us back up. We sin, we repent. We've used our tongue to hurt someone. We go to that person. We humble our heart and we ask their forgiveness. If you've been offended by someone as a believer in Jesus Christ, it is required of you to extend your forgiveness to them when they come. We need to patch up the relational breaches in the body whenever they occur. This is how they'll have us. This is how God would have us live our lives. In fact, James expresses it this way. I like it very well. Verse 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Resist the devil in an attitude of condemning others, speaking ill of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And draw near to God and he will draw near to you. May the gospel be your source of comfort and strength, my beloved. Let's pray. Our Father, in our own strength, these commands to us are impossible. There is no way. O Lord, we fail and we fall multiple times every day. I thank you, O Lord, for your grace that forgives us. I thank you for the cross of Calvary where all of these sins were crushed by Christ. I thank you, O Lord, for the power of your indwelling spirit wherein we may have strength 
to make change in our life in this way. Oh Lord, let us, let us believe and let us be delivered. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.